Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ken Adams, who began his professional career in 1981, treating children, adolescents, and their families. In 1985, he began private practice with Children of Alcoholic Parents Program. It was there that he began to notice that many of these clients had addictions and enmeshment issues, two of his primary specialties today. He wrote his first professional article in 1987 on covert incest and sex addiction in alcoholic families and has since written three books and numerous peer-reviewed articles. Dr. Adams maintains his clinical practice in Michigan, and he's also created and facilitates the enmeshment workshops from guilt and ambivalence to passion and purpose to help those struggling to break free from enmeshment. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ken. You're welcome, Yasmin. Nice to be here. Anxious to and excited to share with you what I've learned. Yeah, likewise. And so, uh, Ken, can you kick it off and tell us like what actually is enmeshment? And because I think it's a term not everyone universally has heard of or understands. Sure. It, although interesting, uh, uh, you may have noticed it's getting used more frequently in the culture at large. People are using it to describe what I think they use it for, which gets to our the heart of our matter is too much involvement, too much closeness at a cost to somebody's own uh, independence or journey. And uh, it emerges, the, the enmeshment in my field, uh, psychology, comes from the family system therapist who observe families functioning uh, in different ways and then looking at symptoms that children had and people had coming out of, shall we say, dysfunctional systems. And you had two extremes in family systems. You had people who were emotionally disengaged, little involvement with each other, little warmth, uh, little loyalty, um, nobody particularly feeling valued in those systems. And we have too much of that in our culture here in the States. And and it, what's interesting is that on the other end uh, is what we call enmeshed systems, which there is too much involvement from family members, uh, high degrees of dependency, high degrees of loyalty uh, at a cost to uh, autonomy and independence on the part of young adults. Uh, and, and one of the ways that shows up uh, invariably it w- that I've learned over uh, years now is that these adults who come from a mesh systems in which there's lo- binds of loyalty to the family. We call it the family brain. It's one of the podcasts I want to do one day is the family brain and why you need your own is that the, is that the loyalty is to the family brain <laughs> at a cost to your own and I'm chuckling, but it's really not a funny matter, um, because if you're caught in one of these enmeshed system, family systems, the loyalty is first, second, and third to the family, that is the parents, those who are in charge, and your needs come second. And then, sadly, your partner or spouse's need even goes further down the list. So I get, on a routine basis, I get calls and emails from spouses and partners of enmeshed men, for example, who complain about these men's mothers who are primary front and center in their lives and how they get little of the emotional love energy from these men. If we pick on men for the moment, although women also can be very enmeshed with their systems, but have some differences. So that's enmeshment, too much loyalty, too much dependency, 
what looks like closeness, and indeed there is closeness and there is warmth, um, which is uh, which is legitimate. But behind that are these implicit, sometimes explicit demands uh, based on guilt and loyalty to be loyal to the system at a cost to your own independence. So that's that's probably the thrust of the definition that we're looking at here. So, uh, Ken, why does this happen? And I'd love to also go a little bit further into how it shows up within the fi- family dynamic. So you said men was kind of the first uh, gender that you picked on, men and their mothers. Um, how does it also play out with women? Um, and is it more prevalent with one dynamic over the other? Those are good questions. Let me see if I can get. So how does it happen? Um, well, again, so remember, families function in different ways and at in different times. So during crisis, families come together. The dependency and loyalty increases. People circle the wagons. You know, first generation, my, my mother's family was Hungarian. They came over. Uh, my grandparents came over from Hungary. And so, you know, you, you see this in immigrant families and other systems where there, there is temporary need for their, for the system to sort of circle the wagons. But if it gets stuck there, uh, it's problematic. So um, the the functioning uh, can be normative in a lot of different situations and cultures and and so forth. And the closeness is welcomed in a lot of places. Uh, Where it gets a little bit off the rails is when it's used in the service of filling. we'll, We'll talk about the parents. When the parent's own personal needs are not met in their marriage, for example, or in their own family of origin, they will turn to one of the children or some of the children to fulfill their narcissistic or dependency needs at a cost to the needs of the child. That's really when it crosses the line. When the, when this, when the relationship between parent and child is in the service of the parent at a cost to the child. So we see that coming from marriages that are not working or, uh, parents whose own childhoods have been disrupted by enmeshment or neglect or abuse. And so they come into these marital bonds, sort of half-baked, if you will, and uh, not really fulfilled, and then turn to one of their children to fulfill them. Now, being a parent myself, and and, um, I'm guessing many of your listeners will be too, uh, I'll remind people that there's a normal love affair between parent and child, right? And, um, and so, you know, kids want to marry their parents and have babies and, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's, you know, they're not watching Disney or reading Freud. That's biologically driven. It's hardwired. Your first love affair is always with your parents, your primary caretaker. And, and ideally that first love affair, that first relationship should be held in the service of the child, not in the service of the parent. And one of the other ways this this enmeshed dynamic becomes dysfunctional is when it services the parent. Oh, that that sweet boy of mine adores me. I will turn to him rather than my husband for comfort, for counsel. I'll tell him my secrets. Um, and my loneliness I'll, I will fulfill with his presence. And unfortunately, that young boy, in this case, if we're looking at boys and their mothers, although it happens with with daughters and um, their fathers and daughters with their mothers too, is the boy feels trapped by that. He feels, 
Of course, he loves his mother, wants to please her, but he also needs to leave her, mm. <laughs> right? He needs to separate. And that first act of separation is in the early years, somewhere between two and three and so forth. And then later in adolescence and young adulthood, he needs to leave. He needs to find his path. And if he's wedded to his mother, I'm going to use that on purpose now. If he's wedded to his mother, he's in trouble. Because his loyalty and his feeling of guilt and obligation will be to her first. And so when it comes time to partner romantically, um, uh, he's in trouble. And so is the person who has fallen in love with him. And so, because of course he's learned to charm, right? Because he's learned that from his mother. He knows how to please. He knows how to please his woman here looking at heterosexual for the moment. And uh, so the woman falls in love with him and she thinks she's found, you know, Nirvana because he's very attentive until she wants more commitment. And then he feels trapped. Ken, what happens when there is a, a desire for a further commitment? What gets triggered by that? Well, so remember, let's come back to now. I'm, I, I love my mommy, but I'm trapped, right? So now all of her needs become assimilated, meaning I take them inside of me and I absorb them as if they're my responsibility. But they're not really supposed to be, right? I'm not supposed to absorb my mother's woes and loneliness and neediness as mine, right? That's her job. That's my father's job. That's her partner's job and her job to figure that out. How did I get stuck with that? And invariably, these kids who get in trouble because of enmeshment tend to have very sensitive temperaments and tend to be very empathic in terms of their temperamental qualities. So they naturally feel bad, right? I don't want my mother to be lonely. So he kind of takes that into his, so he's been burdened, right? I've absorbed these feelings and needs. I'm off at school. I'm worried about my mother, so I have... School phobia, right? I used to work, uh, my first professional uh, work was with um, children, and uh, we had these school phobic kids, and they weren't afraid of school. They were in conflict about leaving their mothers because they were so worried and tethered, use that word on purpose, tethered to their mother's worries. And so that sort of weaves itself into the emotional attachment template. In other words, our, our capacity for attachment. Uh, how do we do? Are we secure being around close to people? Are we comfortable with our own needs and someone else's needs? That, that all originates in these early attachment experiences. Primarily, they can be affected by other relationships, of course, later. And so I take that feeling that I'm trapped, right? And I'm stuck. And so my partner says, oh, geez, won't it be a good idea if we think about marriage down the road? Now, he doesn't hear that as an invitation and as an exciting delight. He hears it as a trap. He feels it as an obligatory bound. And now my romance has become an obligation to me. Now she wants too much for me. Now she's going to be dependent on me. Now her neediness will be mine. And so he transfers those feelings onto the romantic partner, and he begins to become ambivalent. So ambivalence is a big issue with men and women who come from mesh systems. They can't really commit, or they're impetuous in their commitments, and then they back out. Wow. <laughs> and they feel, they feel trapped. They feel obligated. And so I can't stiff-arm my mommy 
because she'll be hurt. And then my dad will call me and my brother will call me. And then pretty soon I got the whole family brain (laughs) working on me. So I'm going to stiff arm my woman or my partner, or I'll betray her. I'll go, I'll go off and have an affair or I'll use porn or something else in which I'm, I'm free to be unobligated to you or I'll, I'll pay a sex worker, right? So we see these sexual um, escapes sometimes as a result because I can't betray my mother. I can't betray my family, but someone's going to get betrayed. Someone's going to, someone's going to get the wrath of my need to be disloyal. And it's it's usually never the parent. It's always no. the partner oh. who gets betrayed. That's what I've seen 600 men and women uh, across the globe in my overcoming enmeshment workshops. And nine and a half out of 10 come in under the umbrella of that issue. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, it's so predictable. I, I can't tell you... Um, and you, and you know you're onto something when you see multiple stories that are, that have the same symptom package, right? You you know you have a, a disorder, or you know you have a symptom a syndrome issue when you keep getting the same stories. So I get these men and women sitting in our workshops. We do these online workshops, and uh, it, it, it's as if they're telling each other stories over and over again. And and the difficulty with commitment and the betraying the partner and feeling trapped with the partner, nine and a half out of 10 times is the primary complaint. Wow. So I'm, I have so many questions. So what is like a healthy amount of kind of time and maybe even emotional exchange between a parent and a child? And is it like the emotional neediness of a parent, like that, that creates this, this tension, um, you know, cause I think in some, with some families, there's a expectation to check in a lot more often than others. So I'm just curious, like based on what you've seen, what's sort of like a healthy amount of exchange, what are like the layers of emotional exchange and yeah, like mm-hmm. maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And that will no doubt dovetail us into maybe even cultural differences and so forth. But so uh, clearly, if I gave you a formula, we'd find exceptions, wouldn't we? And so the the real answer, so I, I know families who have lots of contact who aren't enmeshed. And I, I've worked with, with people who haven't had contact with their parents or mothers for a year, or their mothers have passed, and they still carry the enmeshed dynamic of guilty obligation, and they transfer it to other people. And they, they, they act that out with their spouse. And so frequency of contact by itself is not an indicator. Although, you know, if you're spending, if you're calling your mother three or four times a day, or she's calling you, you don't, and she's worried, she's burdening you with her helplessness and her neediness, or your father is, or your brother is. And, and pretty soon you're feeling care, you're carrying those issues. And then you get home and your partner wants to talk and spend time with you and you can't be bothered. The frequency becomes an issue, right? And, and and you need to start looking at separating, uh, uh, having boundaries about contact. Like, I can't talk to you every day. Don't call me with all your worries. Of course, you know, and that's a reasonable boundary with a parent, right? I love you dearly, but don't call me every day with your, with, with your problems with dad. I'm not your counselor. There's no reason you can't say that, except in the mesh system, you don't dare say that. Wow. <laughs> because it's seen as disloyal and it will be experienced as disloyal and there'll be retribution and guilt. So, but here's my answer. 
The line in the sand, because that's what you're asking, right? Where's the line? The line in the sand cannot be determined until you're free of obligatory assignment. So how do I know where my line of caring, how often should I check in with my mother or father versus, you know, when should I let some space be there? I can't decide that if I'm under obligatory contract on a daily basis. So the first order of business is to, and I'll say this directly, but but carefully, is to divorce the contractual arrangement that my obligation is to you. Once that happens, now I'm free to love you on my terms. I'm free to call you because I want to see how you're doing. I'm not calling you because I have to. I'm calling you because I want to. So so then the frequency of contact is defined by my desire to share love and concern, not based on obligation, because I have let go of my role as the golden boy or golden girl to you. I'm no longer your little boy or little girl. I'm my own man. And the best, my best advice to you, mother, is for you to treat me like a man and not your boy. And so... That is really the answer to your question in my, in my experience, is that you can't know the line until you're free of the obligation, until you're on the other side of the line and say, no, my loyalty is one to myself, two to my partner, and then my own family of procreation, whatever that looks like, and then to you, family of origin. Notice that's the fourth on the list. Wow. So the family comes last. The family comes down the list. Now, under under conditions of, you know, then how so we get this, we get this a lot in our workshops. We get we get people showing up and their parents are aging and they need help and so forth. Well, how do I help them? And you know, that that requires more involvement. And so, but but even there, I still need to operate from the placeholder that my life is my priority. I want to help you. But I'm not going to give my life up to help you because isn't that your job, mother, father, is is to send me off into the world, by the way, right? I, I've been describing this lately because I've learned this from the, the men and women who've come into the workshop. I, I think, and I think this as a parent myself, uh, my son's in college and I'm watching, having to, I have to sort of manage my own separation from him. He's his own person, you know. And uh, which is great, which is what you want, right? But there's always a loss, right, uh, for parents, even under the best of conditions. The last spirit, so I say it this way, the last spiritual assignment of the parent is to take the loss. What does that mean? That means I grieve the loss of my emerging adult son or daughter. It is not his or her job to cushion the blow. Mm, wow. It is my job, my last assignment as a parent before I transition to a more co-equal relationship with my adult son or daughter is to live with the grief that my little boy or my little girl has moved on. And that's a good thing. But it's sad for me. And it's true. It is a, there's a normal sadness and grief in that. But it's the parent's assignment to do that grieving. It is not the child's assignment to cushion the blow. Wow. And so in the mesh systems, that's all backwards. 
That's all backwards. So the family brain, the the enmeshed system brain. So the loyalty is to the brain. The, the loyalty is to the, the the system. The the mother, the father, who is defining it. And so I have to give up my independence and cushion you and comfort you. And I'm going to have to move back from college, or I I can't really marry the person I want to marry, or or you know, or they're in conflict with you. And I can't tell you the number of stories I get with where there's fighting between the spouses, between the the spouse and the the parent and the enmeshed man or woman is caught in the middle and they're trying to placate everybody, but it's impossible because they still feel under the obligation to cushion the loss for the parent, but it's really not your job, which doesn't mean you don't love them or you don't say, look, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. I want to visit with you. But my loyalty is to my family. So if you look at, if you go into the family system literature, which is where a lot of this enmeshed stuff comes from, family system therapists, meaning therapists who work with the entire family system, for example. And, and you'll see these uh, repeated lists of healthy, healthy system, healthy functioning family systems and couple systems. One of the, one of the characteristics that invariably is on every list is that the loyalty to the family of procreation, meaning your your romance, your life, your children, is greater than the family of origin. Now think about that for a minute. The loyalty to the family of procreation is greater than the family of origin. And so that's where the line is. And so notice it doesn't say equal to. Hmm. Most enmeshed, a lot of enmeshed men and women try to equal out and parse out the loyalty and love to everybody in hopes that everybody's happy. And of course, nobody's happy, including themselves. They try to placate everybody and they really get resentful and they begin to withdraw or act out with food or sex or so forth. And does that play out um, both like emotionally, financially, physically? How do you mean? Say more about that. Yeah. So in terms of you know, the the line that's kind of the obligation piece, like how do, does that kind of manifest on in different levels? Like, um, does it just, you know, is it emotional? Is it financial? Like, do, do does this enmeshed uh, son or daughter, for example, feel responsible for like taking care of their parents' financial situation or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, no, I see here. I hear now what you're asking. Yes. You, you can see different aspects or different layers of the obligatory assignment all the way from taking on the parents' emotional problems to paying, um, uh, helping them out financially. And so we get very stories about that or vice versa, where the parent has a, um, uh, it, it has money that they're, that they're, um, bequeathing or giving to the child and they'll keep they'll keep the money as a leverage and so some of the some of the uh, one of the things that adults uh, young adults who are or adults who are, have been enmeshed is they have to be willing to let go of wanting the money from the parents in order to be free because so sometimes money is used both ways so yeah so sometimes the boundaries so you know we we often talk about setting boundaries right this concept of setting boundaries and so how do I love you okay um I, I want to assist you uh financially but I'm not going to be responsible for your bills on an ongoing basis I have to take care of my own family I can allot you x amount of dollars per year but don't call me on a daily basis for money or a monthly basis so somewhere there has to be a rearrangement of the contractual 
uh, assignment. So you you see, we're back to that line in the sand, right? Where if I don't if I don't divorce my and when I say divorce, I mean internally. If I don't let go of my contractual assignment that I'm responsible to my parents, then I can't turn around then and freely give the love and support that I do want to give. And so, you know, and that includes money and that includes physical time. Um, and that includes, you know, uh, emotion, how we talk. Right. So I, you know, I don't want you to call me up and tell me about, you know, your problems with dad anymore. You know, I, I feel bad. I feel caught in the middle. I think you and dad should work this out. Let's talk about the weather. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, so we have to teach. One of the things we do is we have to, we work with the, a, adults who are enmeshed in their systems and help teach them how to have a loving conversation, but not to get ensnarled in the drama. What do you do, though, when, when a parent is unable to register that mm-hmm. request. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question, you know, because that ideally we'd like our parents' blessing, right? We'd like to say, you know, it, you brought me in this world to be my own man or own woman, and I, I'd like your blessing. Emancipation, because that's what we're talking about here, right? We're emancipating. Uh, is not a co- It's it's not a negotiation. I don't need your approval. I would like your blessing. And so, in, and in some cases, the parents won't give it. And, it, and sometimes they'll be very explicit about that. And, um, and, and even, you know, so we have some family systems that will retaliate and, and get quite harsh. And, and that's really a difficult situation. And it forces the adult child into an uh, an unfair position of having to choose. And um, and so um, there aren't any easy answers there, but I, I take your audience back to my position that first order of business is to divorce the contractual arrangement so you can think clearly about how you want to respond to that. Look at you guys are threatening me, cutting me off. I would hate that you do that. I love you dearly, but I'm not going to give up my life just because you threatened me. I would ask that you treat me like an adult. So you have to come back as the adult, right? And 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 sort of speak and give them the words that they need to think about. You, Mom, if if you want me around, I would suggest another approach. Stop guilting me. And please start treating me respectfully as somebody who deserves uh, their own life. I'll be wanting to come around then. So you're going to have to give the language to the parents and almost give them the assignment about how to treat you. In a lot of cases, the parents will f- will find their place around that. There are some exceptions where parents become retaliatory, um, even disown uh and and you know you have a very dysfunctional uh, enmeshed system when the parents disown their own children because they want their own lives. But we've seen it, and and I don't have an easy answer for you there, because it 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 puts you in the position of two choices, doesn't it? You either have your own life or you sacrifice it for your parents, and that's unfair. That's really unfair. Mm. That's the best I can say there. It's it's 
it's it's almost cruel for a family system to do that to their children. And I want to go back also to this uh, earlier point about um, what you said, like ambivalence or an inability to commit uh, to the, the partner over the parent. Um, what does that look like? And can maybe you can share some stories um, from your own workshops or practices, like what has worked well, what hasn't worked well, and maybe you know speak more about about that kind of characteristic and and why it plays out. Yeah. So again, let's come back to the overall theme: is this a mesh the uh, woman or man? And I just remind you, we've been talking mostly here about men and their mothers, and that's not really fair to women who can have these experiences, just briefly, you had asked this earlier, with their fathers, uh, although we'll often see women more to be their surrogate, uh, father's surrogate girlfriends, right? Uh, or And or they'll be their mother's surrogate uh, husband or best friend or loyal partner because the father is absent. And so the women will have very similar um, sets of characteristics about commitment issues that we see with men. Um, around this, uh, although women find it more difficult uh, to to break free of this enmeshment, I think because of cultural uh, reinforced attitudes that women are responsible for caretaking their parents, and men get a pass on that to some degree. So women have this extra extra um, heavy lifting to do around having to get past cultural reinforcement messages around that. Having said that, both men and women will struggle with commitment because they've absorbed the the burdens of of helplessness, uh, neediness, loneliness of the parent, and so they get into a relationship. And um, you know, there's the stories are are, are are almost eerily similar where you know they'll be they'll be reacting strongly and angrily to simple requests for increases in commitment or do, you know, or even, um, uh, you know, or a difficult conversation. uh, And pretty soon they're raging at, so we get lots of overreactive anger and rage issues on the part of enmeshed individuals towards their partner because they feel as if they've encroached upon their space. And they begin to feel threatened that your needs, and of course, any romantic relationship requires, you know, even under the best of circumstances, long-term romances are, are, are require, um, you know, two individuals who are in their adult presence and can, can negotiate and talk and uh, be vulnerable and, and so forth. And, but if you add the ghost in the bedroom, mother or father, and you're, which is what happens, right? So we get reports of people, uh, I get lots of reports of sexual dysfunction. I can't get aroused, you know? And so, and, uh, you know, I've had many, many consultations where, you know, the, the spouse will report that after a conversation with his mother, he doesn't want anything to do with me. He won't touch me. He won't talk to me. I approach him sexually and he can't even get aroused. And what's happened is, is that, he has to shut down his body just to defend against the mother's intrusion. And unfortunately, he takes that into the bedroom and in and out of the bedroom, frankly. So he's gone numb 
as a way to defend against it. So we see sexual dysfunction or ambivalence. So if I if we get into a fight, I'm ready to leave, right? Rather than an argument is an opportunity for the two of us to figure out what's going on and to grow together. So in the face of conflict or your or the fact that you're needy, I'm ready to leave. So I have a, a set of a sense of ambivalence. So we see a lot of ambivalence. I don't know if I'm going to come to the party. I'm not sure. I'll let you know last minute whether I'm going to be there or not. So we get this sort of ambivalence around commitment all the way from romance to showing up at a dinner party and uh, difficulties with commitment as a result of that because commitments feel burdensome. I feel locked in and that means I have to take care of you. And, And to some degree... That's conscious, and in other ways, it's not conscious. It just is, it's, it's in the fabric of my selfhood. And so when you show up as a, as somebody who's having a bad day, so you come home and you, you, you know, I'm, I'm the enmeshed man, and for example, and my spouse has had a bad day, the enmeshed man immediately feels like he has to fix and absorb the problems, and he's angry at his wife, for example, for having a bad day, and she's bewildered why he's having such a hard time listening to her, because in his inner world, it feels like an obligatory mess that I now have to take on. She just wants someone to listen to her, right? She's confused. He's brought someone into the conversation that doesn't belong. It's his mother. So we have ghosts in the bedroom. We have ghosts in the house. We have the parents, um, the, the template of the parents' energy where it doesn't belong. So lots of commitment issues. That's why, for example, you know, we have men in, um, into the workshop whose mothers have passed away, or maybe they've had these rigid boundaries where they haven't talked to them for the year. They still have the same problems in relationships. They may have an immediate relief if their, if their mother had passed away, but it doesn't last because the internal landscape of my attachment template, if you will, contains the obligatory assignment that my mother left with me, even if she's passed away. And so can the, the, the sort of, um, emancipation piece, the solution is to, is to declare your independence for, on all levels from a parent and, you know, and is it appropriate? Cause I think this is such a confusing space, right? Cause I think a lot of people, you know, we feel, especially if we're, you know, close with our parents or we feel connected to them, um, in relationship, like how is it appropriate to talk about your romantic relationship with your parent? Like what's sort of the line there? Well, like it depends on how it's used, right? I mean, um, you know, if 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 the parents over involved in in usurping or undercutting your marital bond, then you probably don't want to talk to them about your romance, right? Become because it becomes a violation of the sacred space between you and your partner, right? So there needs to be a a place of safety. So the in a coupleship in a Actually, we're doing a talk tomorrow uh, in our Overcoming Enmeshment. We do a monthly webinar on a free webinar for enmeshed systems. People, by the way, can find out about our stuff on overcomingenmeshment.com. But I'm actually the speaker tomorrow, and we're going to talk about Valentine's Day. And one of the core issues in a coupleship is is creating a... a um, container, a safe bubble or a safe space in in which both partners protect that bubble from intrusion. 
And so it depends. If I bring my my story about my romance to my family, do they support me or do they try to undermine it? If they undermine it, then I should not bring it to them because my, my responsibility is to protect that romantic space and to prevent intrusion uh, from the outside that would disrupt it. So it, it, it really depends on, on, on how that's translated. So, Ken, I want to uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the pandemic, and because I think a lot of people have not just mm. become, you know, enmeshed with their families, but probably in their romantic partnerships. Um, so, I'd love to talk about what you've noticed over the last several years, like how the pandemic has sort of um, played out in relationships. Obviously, there's been a massive increase in divorce. I think it's been an especially hard time to be in a partnership. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that. If you've noticed any trends or themes or any kind of surprises. You yeah, that's a great question. Very insightful. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I mean, I have thought about that, but I hadn't thought about it for our conversation today, but, but you're right. The pandemic has increased proximity to those we love and kind of stuck, right? So, you know, I, I like hanging out with my wife, but uh, okay, this is a little too much here, you know? And we're kind of stuck in the four walls of the house. And it, it has activated um, some, and, and I should say, aggravated these enmeshment dynamics. So what I've seen is a, I want to say a five to six fold increase uh, in in the uh, numbers in my workshops, in the contacts. Um, I'm getting a dozen contacts a day from people. That was not happening before the pandemic. Now, that may be a function of the fact, too, that that the work you know that I've been doing has gotten uh, a broader recognition and so forth. But I have noticed an increase in the pandemic that it has aggravated these dynamics because it's harder to have a sense of separateness and still welcome you in my space if you're always in my space, right? Right. And and if if we're always reacting to each other, so there needs to be, you know, in in a secure attachment, there's there's a shuttle between who I am as a person, right, and my independence, and then sharing who I am with you in another space, you know, emotionally, romantically, sexually, in which we come together. And we sort of collapse into each other's arms, literally and figuratively. But then I move back out of that space and I need to be able to do, I need to be able to come and go in that space in order for me to be able to be present, to be functional sexually, to be true to myself and to be able to share with you what I need to. But I can't be constantly having you in my space or vice versa and expect myself to have a self, right? So during the pandemic, we have seen this sort of collapsing of these boundaries and an aggravation of these enmeshed dynamics, for sure. Yeah, and... um I, I'm also curious if you have tools for people who um, are maybe like getting into new relationships uh, during the pandemic um, in terms of creating that physical space. Um, and, and also one thing we didn't talk about is the difference between enmeshment and codependency. Because I think those terms get, uh, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, they, they, they sort of get... Um, 
overlapped, overlapped or replaced, yeah, replaced yeah. with each other. So yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, so those those are related but distinctly different terms. So codependency uh, can be an overused term, but it does describe uh, people who tend to be excessively concerned about how you feel about me, right? And so I'm apt to drop who I am and what I'm doing to please you and to organize around you, right? But there's there's more than one way I become codependent. I can come from a physically abusive family, a sexually abusive family, a neglectful family. Um, what it lacks is these obligatory loyalty contracts in which I'm bound to you out of guilt, so they share this dependency, this increased dependency, but people from the mesh systems have a greater degree of, of guilty obligatory contractual assignments that I must be loyal to you at a cost to myself. So it's a little more specific. We see a lot more ambivalence in the mesh system versus codependents tend to sign up for relationships rather quickly and, de and declare their loyalty rather quickly. And we see some of that with the meshed folks, but, but not as often. We tend to see um, more ambivalence. How do you work through codependency in relationship? Well, so we can borrow a little bit from the enmeshment recovery as well. And so I think, I think you have to come in similarly to the enmeshment work and, and have a sense of value about who I am. I, I am a value on my own, right? I am worth being treated well. I'm worth having a life, pursuing my own interest. Um, and I don't need someone else to define what that should be. So that that's a shared um, uh, piece to both recoveries from codependency and enmeshment recovery. So the first, um, so you're kind of asking about how to recover from this. You you have to confront the belief system. So if I if I carry a core belief that other people's needs are more important than mine, or that I'm obligated to my family, I, I can set as many boundaries as I want, and I'll just collapse them if I haven't challenged my beliefs. So examining and, and rearranging, or at least shifting the the core belief system, so that you are of value and you understand that your needs may be important, and I want to tend to them, but your worries are not my worries. So the, the next, so when we talk about recovery from enmeshment, and I think we'll use this as a sort of crossover with codependency since you brought two terms up, but let me talk about enmeshment here because I think, I think they're transferable. So one is challenging the belief. Second step then is to have a set of boundaries. Uh, it sounds like you're hurting today. Um, I'm happy to share a call with you, but I can't listen. You know, I'm only on, I'm only available for ten or fifteen minutes. Or so we begin to have boundaries about how frequently we talk to people, topics of conversation, how often, who we hug, uh, who we let touch us, and so forth. And, and then there's this concept that's a little more difficult to understand that's different than separation. So again, I got these guys who come into the workshop who have been separated from their mothers for a year or their families, but they're not differentiated. Now, differentiated is a term used to say, your feelings are not my feelings. Your, mm. your worries are not my worries. Your needs are my, not my needs. What codependence in a meshed individual share is a lack of differentiation. 
with other people. And so beginning to practice sort of holding your space, kind of taking a deep breath and, you know, and somebody's going on and on about your mother or father is going on or your brother or sister or your, your, your lover is, is holding space for them, but not absorbing that as yours. That's an internal boundary. That's, that's learning to differentiate me from you. And that's, that's different than an external boundaries, external boundary that I'm not going to call you every day. Cause we've got guys again who don't call their mothers every day, but they worry and feel guilty, uh, throughout the entire day because they're not differentiated. They haven't challenged their belief. Um, and so finally, the, the last stage of enmeshment recovery and to some degree codependency is emancipation. I, I'm living my life on my terms, not yours. And um, I'll care about you. I'll love you. But I'll love you from the perspective that works for me as well. And so that's that's a more emancipated position than I love you based on what you need. Which isn't to say that, you know, in, in relationships, romantic relationships, we don't sacrifice at times or give to others. Of course we do. Um, and so if our, if the parent is disappointed, that's okay, right? Like as the... As the well, it's not going to. It's not going to feel okay. <laughs> it, it's, but it is. It is expected. You know, it is part of the transitional space. You know, I mean, parents love their kids, even under even even we take it out of enmeshment, right? Um, and so there's a sort of disappointment, or let's call it loss or grief. There's a loss in grieving as our children move on. Um, you know, the, the great, um, uh, Lebanese poet Gibran, uh, he wrote a number of things, um, on different topics, but one of them was on children. And I can't, I'm going to get this not quite right, but he said, you know, your sons or daughters are not yours. Their life's longing for itself. Mm, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, and so I think I'll, I'll kind of, uh, close here in a moment with you. But um, I think that's a good reminder that that uh, that that children are life's longing for itself, and the parents, as he says in the poem, are the bows or the archers, rather, by which they um, cast or thrust, not cast, but thrust their children into the world. And um, and the job of the archer, he says, is to stay sturdy. And so it is not the job of the children flying away to come back and solidify that parent. So I love his poem. It's worth reading if you get a chance. Yes. Thank you so much, Ken. I know we're uh, at time, but where can people find you, find more about the enmeshment workshops and some of your books? Yeah, so I think the, probably the quickest way is just to go on the website Overcoming Enmeshment, one word, overcomingenmeshment.com. Great. And your books are on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. Sure. Okay, yep. wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken. Uh, this was so lovely. I learned so much. I'm sure that this is going to help so many people. So thank you so much oh, for your good. time. <laughs> You're so welcome. You're, you did a great job, and uh, thank you for having me. And take care. All right. Take care. All the best. 
For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about enmeshment and healthy boundaries with Dr. Ken Adams. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.